0: Well, today and next Sunday, we're going to uh, do a short two-week sermon series called Wisdom from Strange Places. And we're going to be looking at two books of the Bible that I would say Christian folks have had a hard time figuring out what to do with. Those two books come right after each other in the Bible. One is called Ecclesiastes, which Pastor read from this morning already. And the other is called The Song of Solomon. Solomon or the Song of Songs, as it says in in some of your Bibles. So we'll be doing that one next week. Well, I just got through both of these books again in my yearly Bible reading plan, and, and like I do every time I read those books, I thought to myself, now what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to respond to a book like this? I mean, this is some strange stuff. And so I thought that for my own benefit, and hopefully for For all all of ours, I would take a closer look at these two books. And as we do that, I just kind of want to ask the question, why did God include these seemingly strange books in his inspired revelation, in his holy word, in his enduring word to all generations? And I called it wisdom from strange places. Why wisdom? Well, there are five books in the Bible that are generally categorized as wisdom literature. Those books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and then these two, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Wisdom literature was sort of a style of writing that was around in the ancient Near East, where people would write in, in, in this sort of way. they write in riddles or, or Proverbs. And so these two books fall within that category. But they are very practical books. The observations of these writers are from everyday practical experiences. And one mark of wisdom books is that they look at life in black and white. There are no grey areas. And that black and white perspective is mostly marked out, and you can see this mostly in Proverbs, in terms of being wise and foolish. You can either be wise or you can be a fool. There's no middle choice, no middle category can't be kind of wise or kind of foolish according to these books. You're either one or the other. And obviously the preferred choice is wisdom. And so these are called wisdom books. Practical advice on choosing wisdom. And so while on one hand these these two books can be a little bit confusing, we can be comfortable knowing that they will show us, as we look through them, the way of wisdom. And I'm sure we could all admit today that we all need help on that front. And so this morning, we're going to take a bird's eye, sort of an overhead look at the book of Ecclesiastes. We won't be able to get into all the details of the book, but we'll just do a bit of an overview. And so if you haven't opened up there, or if you closed up after the scripture reading time, I invite you to open up to Ecclesiastes again. And just so you know, before I get into it, I'm not the only one that thinks that these books are Strange. One commentator on this book, James Crenshaw, that I read this week, calls Ecclesiastes the strangest book in the whole Bible. So we want to find out what's strange about this book. Well, after reading it again a few times this week, it's strange because it seems so negative, so depressing, so discouraging, so utterly futile. Look at how it starts out there in the the second verse of the book. It says, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. If you have a new international version, it it calls it meaningless. And that word shows up over and over again, 38 times in Ecclesiastes. The word literally means empty or or void or complete nothingness. In this context, it refers to something that disappears. It's, It's fleeting. And that was this writer's view of life. And it was universal, it was comprehensive. It says there all is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Well, he starts the book like that. And that futile, pessimistic perspective keeps on going all the way through. And so immediately my thought is, why is something like this in the Bible? I mean, is this guy for real? It seems like whoever wrote this book is, a, is completely skeptical about everything. He's a, what we would call today a glass-half-empty kind of guy, someone who's totally cynical about everything in life. If you hang around a guy like this long enough, and if you read this book over and over again, I think we all need to, we'll, we'll have to take a happy pill or something, because we'll be depressed. It's just a strange book. So why is this in the Bible? Does this book even belong in the Bible? Well, after studying it this week a little bit more, I would say that God has included this book in his holy word for a very good reason. As with anything that comes from God, there's a good purpose for this book. And we could even call it a great book. I was interested this week to read an article about a college program in the States where, they, where all they do is study great books. And the writer of that article had eight points on what makes a book a great book. Here are some of the points which he, which he talked about there. It's an interesting list. One of the, the fourth reason there was a great book is one that provokes excellent discussion. I'm sure you could think of many books that do that, some of the great classic books. But Ecclesiastes is one of the books that would do that. Or number six on the list was that a great book is time-tested. It's a book that has lasting value. It doesn't just talk to one particular uh, period of time and then disappear in relevance. It's time-tested. But the seventh reason that was on that list really fits with Ephesians, and it's the one that caught my interest. And you might think of some of the books that you have read in this category. The number seven reason, or or way a, a book can be categorized as a great book, is that a great book is weird. And so Ecclesiastes definitely fits in that. And then the last reason was that a great book is smarter than the best teacher, but within reach of the average student. And I would be a less than average student. And so Ecclesiastes makes a good book for me. A great book. Well, on all these points, Ecclesiastes qualifies. In my opinion, the best quality of the book is that it makes us think. And that's what God wants us to do as we read this book. He wants us to think about our lives. And in particular, God included this book and his word to make you think about what can happen If you set your hope only on this world, if you set your sights on anything other than God. Throughout the book, this writer describes himself as setting his sights on this and that in order to know wisdom. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. Or in chapter 3, verse 22, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. Chapter 4, verse 1, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Chapter 5, verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Very practical, but these are the things he's seeing. And so he considers all sorts of things in this life, and he, he thinks about them. He considers them. And that's what all of us, that's what you need to do with a book like this. It should make you consider where you set your sights, on where you set your hopes. Just a word about the author of this book. The traditional assumption is that this is written by King Solomon. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. You read that and you go, that sure sounds like Solomon. And Solomon was probably the wisest man that ever lived. But Solomon also is never mentioned in the book. And some scholars argue that son of David could refer to any descendant of David. And that's true in the Bible. There are people who weren't literally David's sons that were still called the son of David. So Solomon isn't mentioned. And and, and in addition to that, the writing style makes this seem like this was written much later than the time in which Solomon lived. And so there's no real consensus on who wrote the book, To me, it really doesn't make any difference to the meaning whether Solomon wrote it or not. I personally believe Solomon did write it, but it doesn't change the meaning of the book at all. But since it says the words of the preacher, we'll call him just that. When Martin Luther, and of course I need to reference Martin Luther on October 31st because you know October 31st is the anniversary of when Martin Luther hammered the 95 Theses on the wall there at the castle in Wittenberg. And we celebrate October 31st now for another reason, but that is a real good reason to celebrate October 31st, um, because that's the start of the Reformation. But when he's translated this book into German, which is one of the great parts of the Reformation, they, they translated God's Word into a language that the people could understand, not just the priests. But when he wrote this book, and when he translated it into German, he called Ecclesiastes the preacher. That was the title, Der Prediger in German. That's what he named the book. The name we use, in case you're interested, Ecclesiastes, comes from the Greek meaning of that word preacher. The Hebrew word there is koaleph, which means to gather together as an assembly. And the Greek word for that is ecclesia. So we end up with Ecclesiastes. But just so we see how to interpret the book, I need to point out one more important thing about how this book is structured. The main part of Ecclesiastes is the musings of this koaleth, this preacher, or teacher, as it says in some of your versions, maybe. But there is another character in this book. There's also a narrator here. This could be even maybe one of the preacher's students. And those only parts of narration are the parts that Pastor Wayne read earlier. In chapter 1, it starts, back to the first words, the words of the preacher, so it's not the preacher saying the words of the preacher, it's someone else saying that. The words of the preacher. And then he gives a summary of the preacher's third, right through to verse 11. And only then in verse 12 does the preacher start to talk in the first, pre- first person. I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem. And then he goes right through talking until chapter 12. If you flip over to chapter 12, verse 8 again, it says the, the narrator picks it up now. He says, Vanity of vanities says the preacher. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And then in verse 12, of chapter 12 again, the narrator writes to his own son and he says there in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And so you kind of look at that and you think it almost seems like the narrator here sets up the preacher as a, as a foil, as an example of the wrong way to think. And then he's, he's giving his son an example of an empty, futile perspective of life and says, don't live like that. That's an important clue to figure out what to do with Ecclesiastes. Some people might read this and, says, and say things like, hey, look, Ecclesiastes say I shouldn't bother with work, but I should just eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds like the fun life, right? Well, now that you know something about how this is structured, you can't just say the Bible says that and that's why I'm going to live. You have to think again and ask yourself what he meant by that. Is that really the point? Or is that an example of the wrong way to think? But Ecclesiastes is is a lot like the book of Job. Remember Job? Job loses all his possessions. His entire livelihood he loses. He loses his children, all of his children, just in the first two chapters. And then from chapter 3 to chapter 37 of Job, you have this dialogue with Job's so-called friends. And they give him some some not-so-good advice on what they think Job should do and on why he lost everything. They know exactly. But they're wrong. We can't take that advice and say, this is how the Bible says I should talk to people who are suffering. No, we have to read to the end of the story. And in Job, near the end of the book, God shows up and he gets into the conversation with Job, and he very directly tells Job that he knows exactly what he's doing, what's going on, and he's in control. And we dare not ever think that we are in control. While Ecclesiastes is the same, only Job is is wisdom for someone who has lost everything, while Ecclesiastes is wisdom for someone that has everything. It teaches us certain lessons on putting our hope on the wrong things. But we don't find out until almost the end that the answer to his questions is God himself. And so now that we know the end of the story, let's take a quick look at just a few of the things that Ecclesiastes makes us consider in terms of where we set our sights. That's what we want to find out about. The first thing is there, and and the main thing, is that it makes us consider the emptiness of life under the sun. Makes us consider the emptiness of life under the sun. In connection with that phrase, the vanity of vanities, the phrase that the preacher uses over and over again in this book is under the sun. 29 times in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. His vision is limited to what he can see in this world. That's what that phrase means. He's short sighted, he can't see beyond the sun, or he's at least not looking beyond the sun. And what he keeps finding when he looks out at the world is vanity, or meaninglessness. Meaninglessness, I'm not sure if that's a word, but that's what he finds. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. That's a summary statement at the beginning of this book. And in the course of the rest of the book, he covers almost every area of life. Work, leisure, eating, sleeping, drinking, sex, time, entertainment, worship, money, education, government. If you want to find out any of those things and what he thinks about those, just read through the book. He has seen everything, and yet he describes all of it as vanity and a striving after the wind, which is another phrase that comes up over and over again. I remember when I was in high school, uh, once in a while in, in phys ed class, we used to play flag football. I guess they didn't want uh, anyone to get hurt, so instead of tackle football, they gave everyone a belt, put it around their waist, and with two flags velcroed on to the side, one at each hip. And so instead of tackling someone, you had to rip off one of the flags. I always thought that was kind of a dumb game. But you'd have someone running as fast as they could with the ball, and instead of tackling them, you'd have to try to grab a flag as the person whizzed by. I just remember, more times than not, thinking I had someone's flag, but looking at my hand afterwards, and it was empty. It was like striving after the wind. Well, that's what life under the sun is like. Just when you think you've got it. Just when you think something will satisfy. It's like trying to grab the wind. You look at life, and it's empty. Well, chapter 2 probably has the most striking picture of both the striving for stuff under the sun and the resulting emphasis uh, emptiness that comes from that. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. preacher says here, "...I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees." I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of men. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And wherever my eyes desired... I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. This writer, and this sure sounds like Solomon here, doesn't it? He had the means to acquire anything he wanted. And he was industrious enough to get it. He worked hard for it. But look at what it got him. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I expend, expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Or verse 17, So I hated life because what was done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. So he considers the, the things that his heart was set on. These, these things that he thought would bring him ultimate satisfaction. But in the end, they provided no satisfaction at all. He put all his energy, all his work into acquiring these things. And what does he say about those things? Rather than bring satisfaction, they bring him despair. Chapter 20, verse 2. I gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun. There's that key phrase again, under the sun. If all we have is an under-the-sun perspective, everything will be meaningless. Everything will prove to be empty. All our efforts will prove to be futile. It's not that any of those things are wrong. It's not that, well, some of them were, but it's not that working hard and acquiring wisdom or possessions is sinful. But it's putting your hope for ultimate satisfaction in those things where the problem lies. It's an over-reliance. It's a key word. It's an over-reliance on those under-the-sun possessions for happiness. It's saying to yourself, if I could just get a bigger home, or if I could just get away on that vacation, or if I could just have that car, if I could just get that dream job, if I just had that boyfriend or that girlfriend, then my life would be complete. While the preacher got himself all that stuff. But in the final analysis... As he took stock of it, it was meaningless. So that should make us think about our pursuits. It should cause us to take inventory on what we deem to be important. Ecclesiastes should cause us to think that something might be missing in our quest for meaning. If all those under-the-sun things are ultimately meaningless and end up being empty, where then can we find meaning? That's the question that comes up here. Well, that gives us a good clue on how to read this book. Ecclesiastes, we have to remember, is only a part of the Bible. You can't take it on its own. And so when we read this sort of futile perspective on life under the sun, we need to fill, the, fill in the gap. There's a gap that needs filling here. And that gap, that missing piece of the puzzle in Ecclesiastes, is Jesus Christ. The preacher continually talks about vanity and striving after the wind, but for the most part, his focus was under the sun. And so the place to find meaning, the antidote to this futility, must be to set our sights above the sun. Listen to Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If therefore you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, not on the things that are under the sun. For those that are in Christ, we should have a perspective that goes beyond the sun and set our minds on that. Well, one of the purposes of this book, one of the purposes behind this preacher's pessimistic outlook in life is to make you consider your pursuits, your affections, The things that you hold dear in life. If you set your sights on the things that are under the sun, the warning in Ecclesiastes here is that you will come up empty. That's what the main purpose of this book is, is to make you consider your affections. And that's what makes this book so relevant, so contemporary for us today. In our world, at this particular point in history in which we live, we are able to acquire most of the things that the preacher acquired. Aren't we? They're all available to us. We can pretty much have what we want. And in our world, even if we can't pay for it now, we can still have it now. Enjoy it now, pay for it later. is the motto for our day. We've been duped into thinking that we even deserve to enjoy things, even if we can't pay for them. After all, everyone else has them. And so we covet those things too. I covet those things. And we eventually just go out and get it, just like the preacher. And from the outside, it it looks like everyone else is enjoying those things. But probe a little deeper into people's lives, and you'll find that those things don't ultimately satisfy people either. So let this preacher's example be a lesson for you not to limit your sights to the things that are under the sun. This guy went out, he worked hard, and he got it all. And yet when he thought about everything he now had, it was vanity and striving after the wind. I'm going to come back to that point at the end, but just a few things that you should consider that flow out of this main point. For you that are young now, children, uh, junior high, senior high, young adults, college students, make sure you give thought to, make sure you consider your ways now. Now. Look at chapter 11, verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your, from your body, for youth And the dawn of life are vanity. And then into chapter 12, verse 1 remember also your Creator when? In the days of your youth. That's just saying that even though you are young, don't just carelessly drift through your life, giving no thought to your ways. You know, I'll just think about all that stuff later. Don't have to worry about that now. Don't do that. Ecclesiastes is warning. This is a word of warning from someone who wished he'd had heard this warning when he was young. But now, we have no excuse. Ecclesiastes stands as a warning and as as advice for all of you. He's saying, yeah, be young. Enjoy your youth. But just know that you will be held to account. There will be judgment. So remember your Creator now. I'm thrilled and encouraged with the fact that so many of our youth and adults are grasping this. It was great to have them leading our, our singing time this morning, wasn't it? Leading us in music. Another one that understood this was our friend Jordi Gauthier, who seemed to grasp this concept. Here's what he wrote shortly before he, he died now, what, seven weeks ago. He wrote, God created us to live with a passion, And to display his excellence in life. The wasted life, he said, is the life without this passion. Like a man who bought a boat to retire and to travel the world. When he came to Christ, and by that he meant when he stood before Christ, he was found to have wasted his life. And then Geordi ends by exhorting those who would read this to find in life where God is calling you to go. And do it, because he has good plans for those who listen and follow him. That almost sounds like it's right out of the pages of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Except he had found the answer. Young people, don't waste your life. Don't let your youth and the dawn of life, as as the preacher puts it here, be vanity. Heed this warning. Well, another thing from Ecclesiastes that that it forces us to think about is that it makes us consider the tragic reality of the fall. God created everything good. This writer even assumes that. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, though, man ruined what God had created. And everything then became futile. Death came into the world, and it affects every single person. Work went from something that was good to something that became difficult toil. Nothing was as it should be. And we will all be judged for our sin and rebellion. That's the world that Ecclesiastes opened our eyes to. It's the world in which we live. It's reality. But that's not the end of the story. Because God in his love provides a way out. There is hope. And by pointing to the futility of the world, Ecclesiastes now leaves us grasping for that hope. Or at least it should. Grasping for a lifeline. And that place of hope, we need to realize out of reading this, is not under the sun, but beyond the sun. The preacher even hints at that in various places where he points to God's goodness and says, to enjoy what God has created. He knows that this world was never meant to satisfy us. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says that God has set eternity in our hearts. And then, at the end, the narrator comes back and drives it home. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We have a holy God who is to be feared and who is to be obeyed. But we also have a loving God who sent his son to pay the penalty on the cross that we deserve for being unable to keep his commandments. We must repent and we must bank our entire hope on Jesus Christ. And when we do that, life is no longer futile. There is hope. This is the gospel. We can't end with Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes must drive us beyond the sun and to the gospel because when we're in Christ when we're united with Christ we are a new creation the old has gone futility has gone the vanity has gone emptiness has gone and the new has come I want to end today with two contemporary testimonies one raises the exact question that Ecclesiastes raises but it doesn't, hasn't found the answer yet the other person asked the same question but found the answer this uh, first word is from Tom Brady. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with that name. The guys might be. Uh, Tom Brady is the popular quarterback for the New England Patriots football team. He, uh, he's led his team to win three Super Bowls. And, and uh, since when he wrote this, he, he was in another Super Bowl, although they lost that one. But uh, he, uh, that Super Bowl is the ultimate prize for American football. Hardly anybody gets to, gets to win that. And so he should by all rights, be at the top of the world. But back in 2007, he was interviewed on, on 60 Minutes, and here's what he said. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, man, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this, isn't, this, this can't be what it's all... What it's all cracked up to be. And then the interviewer asked him, he says, what's the answer? Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Well, we can all pray that Tom Brady finds the answer that God has revealed in the Bible. Namely, that he is a, a sinner separated from God, but can be reconciled through Jesus Christ. And he can find meaning in his life. There is more. The other story is from Chuck Colson who many of you will recognize as the former aide to President Nixon in the early 1970s and was later imprisoned for his role in Watergate. Here's how he recounts his conversion. He says, I was the principal strategist behind the 1972 re-election campaign of Richard Nixon, and when it was all over, I should have been absolutely on top of the world. I'd succeeded. We won. It was a historic landslide. But instead, I found myself staring out of the office window thinking, so what? I was getting ready to go back to my law firm and was going to make a fortune, literally a half a million dollars a year. And I felt dead. Really dead. Well, he meets up with a with a friend later on who tells him about Jesus Christ and and he he has this meeting with this guy at his house, and then he gets back into his car and he says, I spent an hour on the side of the road, right next to my friend's home, crying, thinking about my life, wanting to know God, wanting to be clean. And we all know that Colson eventually became a Christian and started a great ministry called Prison Fellowship. Well, both these people, Tom Brady and Chuck Colson, asked the right questions. Brady had reached his dream under the sun. His dream that was under the sun to win, to be a champion, to be the best. And he found that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Colson was going to make a fortune. He had been to the White House, but yet, he says, he felt dead really dead that sounds very much like Ecclesiastes and it makes us think that we can't just set our hopes for happiness on fame and fortune and success things in this life will always promise more than they can deliver The message of Ecclesiastes is that we need to center our lives on God and on his son true hope genuine happiness real meaning is found only in the saving knowledge of the one true God. Let's pray.